Welcome, everyone, to a new episode of Tales of the 2S LGBTQ+. My name is Douglas Parsons. By this time, I hope you know Liz Messiah. If you have not listened to a previous podcast with Liz Messiah in it, I do ask that you go back to part one of the Trailblazer series and learn more about Liz as she came to Edmonton and as she first started as an advocate within the community. You can also listen to Liz and Michael Fair in a couple of episodes where we focused on the AIDS crisis in the 1980s. So this is Liz's fourth time appearing on Tales of the LGBTQ+, and she now holds the record as being <laughs> the guest who has been on here the most. Rob Borowski, Ron Byers will probably be upset by that and will be knocking on my door, making sure that they get on here again soon. So do check out the previous episodes. Today, we're going to talk more about Liz's career. We're going to learn more about what is GALA. We've made mention of GALA. Let's learn more about its roots and how it morphed over the years. And of course, going back into those personal stories, because that's where we learn and that's where we grow. Before we bring Liz to your screen and or your listening ears, Tales of the 2S LGBTQ Plus is a weekly video and audio podcast that showcases the remarkable people found within our rainbow community. It's by listening to our stories, which happen to be your stories. We gain insight, understanding, and connection. So let's continue to do this week in and week out. Do check out previous episodes. If there's a topic, part of the community that you want to understand more, send me a message. I can direct you to an interview that will help you the most. We tape this live, so do expect technical hiccups, voice snafus, and other unexpected hijinks. It likely has happened. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or any of the other audio, please make sure you give us a like, some starred ratings. That helps us with the algorithm. And of course, if you're here on YouTube, press subscribe. Do leave comments. Do leave those likes. It helps us in so many different ways. So please, 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 please. Now, I'm based here in Edmonton, Alberta, Canada. And it's important for me to say that as I like to acknowledge that I am on Treaty 6 territory, a traditional meeting ground, gathering place, and traveling route to the Cree, Sado, Blackfoot, Metis, Dene, and Nakota Sioux. I acknowledge all the many First Nations, Metis, and Inuit whose footsteps have marked these lands for centuries. I especially want to mention the knowledge keepers and elders who have come before and those who are here today. I continue to open myself up to listen, to learn, and to understand, and I hope you join me on this journey as well. I say this as part of reconciliation and elevating my platform whenever possible to bring voices to everybody. As I may mention, today's guest is Liz Messiah. Let's bring her to your screen and or your listening ears. 
Welcome back to Tales of the 2S LGBTQ+, Liz. Thank you very much. And I noticed that your cat was in the background, also checking to see if he was going, he or she was going to get included in the discussion. If I was that, my, my cat, Bismarck would have been part of the story too. At some point that could happen. I always go back to an episode I did with Cheyenne from Edmonton Two Spirit Society. She was having a very important conversation she was mentioning so many things that we needed to know about learning. And my cat came in and knocked off my camera, my microphone, knocked everything to the floor in the midst of a very emotional part, especially for me and understanding. Yeah. Yeah, cats. We yeah. love them. Yeah. Well, so you had asked about the origins or, or to talk for me to talk more about Gala. And I would. It came from a question from a listener. They knew about the Pride Center. They knew a little bit about the history from when it was created to now. But then the word gala was thrown in and they said, I don't know enough about this. So I'll throw this to you, Liz. Can you tell us more about what gala was and how it came to be? Well, I'm... I have a picture in my head of, of the moment and the circumstances in which we came up with the name Gala. But for the life of me at the moment, I can't remember whose place we were at. But I digress. In 19, probably 84, there was an invitation sent out by a guy named John Doyle, who was inviting people to come to a meeting to talk about starting up some events for Pride Week or for Pride. And because I was the public relations person for Women's Space at the time, I said I would go. And so we met, and that Sunday afternoon, a bunch of us decided that, and here again where ignorance is bliss, because we didn't know what we were getting into, but we thought that having some events for Pride Week or Pride would be fabulous. And so there were a fair number of people there. So we became a committee uh, or a group that was going to do that. And so somewhere fairly early on in that process, we decided that we needed a name. And, and Pride Planning Committee didn't sound very interesting. So we met, and, oh, I can see him. I can't remember his name, but it'll come to me. Uh, I think he was a graphics designer guy. And he came up with, and he said he liked the name Gala because it sounds like a party. It sounds like a fun event. But the letters can stand for gay and lesbian awareness. And so Gala was born. And then he also created the logo, which is of the, the dancing fig that, you know, was on all of Gala's stuff for years. So we worked together and put on the first events for Pride Week. And I actually came across one of the posters that I still have. We worked hard and... We had quite an effective or an interesting variety of things that went on that week. And 
later in the summer, we decided to reward ourselves for all our good work by having a picnic. And so at that picnic, there was John and myself and Lorna and Billy and Barry, I think were the main ones. And Barry brought up the Individual Rights Protection Act, which is Alberta's human rights legislation, was coming up for revision. And that perhaps we should make an effort to, you know, get them to include sexual orientation in the legislation. And again, not knowing any better, I remember saying, looking around and saying, you know, well, we've done a pretty good job of working together and we sort of got a sense of each other's strengths and and abilities. So why don't we take it off? And so hence the gala civil rights section of gala was born. And for a long time, we tried to do both parts, the civil rights part, as well as planning Pride Week and the, and eventually the parade. But it got to be too much. And we were having, you know, it was just too much for one group to do because we were up to our eyeballs in meeting with politicians and letter writing campaigns and media stuff and all kinds of things. And so eventually it was decided that that there had been other people who had come along who were interested in doing the pride thing. And so that sort of shuffled off into a separate grouping. At one point, we had a very interesting organizational structure for the pride stuff because we had basically a committee of the whole and a steering committee. And the steering committee was, you know, four or five of us who sort of oversaw the whole thing. And then every once in a while, the various groups that were interested in participating in Pride would come and and report, and we'd try and do some coordinating so that, you know, there weren't three events on at the same time, you know, that kind of thing. And so that's really Gala in a nutshell. We incorporated as a not-for-profit society in Alberta and continued as such for, for many, many years. We had a bank account, and I remember when Gallup started putting on fundraisers, and one of them was started with New Year's Eve dances, and they were very successful. And and I was talking to Michael about it, about how we were afraid that for the first one that nobody would come, and it was a great success. And we had like five hundred dollars profit, which in the you know early to mid eighties was six hundred bucks in the bank. We thought we we're millionaires. <laughs> And that continued. Then one of the things that I'd forgotten about and that Michael had mentioned is that there was a conference that was called the Flaunting It Conference. And it was partly sponsored by Gala. And it was held in, I think it was October of 90, was it 89 or or 90, somewhere in there? And that's when Delwyn Vreend had been doing a lot of work with Gala. And we asked his parents if they would speak to the press about having a gay son. And they said, sure. And so Delwyn's parents spoke to the media. And it wasn't long after that that he was fired from King's College for being gay. So all of these things intersect uh, over time. And so when Delwyn, I remember he came to to a gala meeting and he was sitting beside me, actually. And we just said to him, well, 
you've been fired and whatever it takes, we're going to support you and do whatever is needed. And so the work around his legal case began. Some of us in Gala were involved, but over time that again evolved into sort of its own group. Michael was part of that. Murray Billet was very much involved with that. That's when Julie Lloyd was the lawyer, amongst others. And so that took on a life of its own. And we kept on doing the, you know, the dances and we kept doing New Year's Eve and we kept on endlessly harassing every politician we could find. And we made some good progress, but eventually it had to come down to the Supreme Court decision because the Alberta Tories were not about to budge. And Liz, I just want to interrupt here and just tell people here why you may have heard of the name Delwyn Vreend. It was this case that was brought to the Supreme Court of Canada. It began in the early 1990s. 1998, the Supreme Court of Canada ruled that one could not be fired from their place of employment due to being part of the LGBTQ plus community. And because we were not protected when it came to the workplace, we could be fired. So it was 1998. It's only been 24-ish years since we've been able to work without the pressure of being outed at the worksite. And so everything has begun here with Gala pushing everything forward a bit and then helping out as well. It seems like yesterday, but it was it was quite a while ago. But I do remember it was the reality that the King's College was very helpful in many ways because they were very clear that the reason he was fired was because he was homosexual. And and so they fired Delwyn and, and they didn't try and hide it be, behind he's not a good teacher or any of the excuses they could have given. He said, no, he's a homosexual and we're a Christian college and we're not going to employ him. So it was it was quite clear cut, was my understanding. And that's partly why, you know, it, it was such a good case to take forward. So with Delwyn, was he, well, he's still alive, but Delwyn, is he as outspoken as Michael Fair and Liz Messiah? Or is he more quiet and was thrust into this position? He was part of Gala and certainly did his part of helping organize things and and I'm sure came to various meetings with politicians over time. I can't recall him speaking to the press, but he certainly was quite an active member. But then once had media presence, once the court case started and once the court case was announced, and he would speak to the press quite, quite frequently, But the court case cost his relationship with the man who was his partner then, and the stress and strain of it was was too much, and and they ended up splitting up. And once court was over and sort of the dust had settled, Delwyn is now in France, living and working in France. And every now and then, there have been times when he's come home for a visit and there's been some sort of a meeting arranged to to discuss again with the media, you know, what's happened. I, I have a hunch he was here for the 20th anniversary of the court case, because I remember there was a good deal of, of press around that. But it's also important as to, to remember the huge human cost of what happened to him 
and a huge human cost of just the time and energy and emotional um, energy that it, that it takes to go through something like that. Your whole life gets taken over. He's now living in France, and I'm not exactly sure what work he's doing, but I know he's still connected with other folks here. His then partner has moved to down Halifax way, and uh, his life has continued on as well. But it really is the human factor. You know, it's easy to sit here years later and, and say, yeah, we talked to the media about the fact that this guy got fired because he's gay. But at the same time, every time we did that, every time we spoke about it, you know, it was sort of raising the ante that, well, I could be fired or Michael could be fired or any of us could be fired with no justification other than our sexual orientation. And so it, it was very real and quite, quite scary at times. So with Gala then, was your focus with Gala then on the workplace legislation? Or did you focus more on the Pride events? Gala started to sort of slow down as the court case proceeded. We kept harassing the provincial folks and continued that. And we did make some allies amongst the Tories, but certainly not enough. They were not about to include sexual orientation in legislation here. And so eventually what sort of happened was we also had the rise of AIDS and the AIDS network. And so a lot of the energy sort of split off. Every organization, I think, or every has sort of a natural life. And our energy had done a good job of making inroads, of creating. We had an excellent reputation. We were respected by the media and by the politicians and by the community. And so that, I think, was one of our major contributions is, wait a minute, we can have good spokespeople who know what they're talking about, who are clear and firm and respectful and all that stuff. And even that act in and of itself creates change because I'm sure this is true for Michael, but I certainly the number of times people have come up to me after the fact, after a press conference, for example, and said, you know, thank you, it made me feel safer, or if you've got the guts to go and do that, then maybe I can do this. And so people took those examples away with them into integrating them into their own lives. Well, that's also where the change comes from. Eventually, people were working very hard at the AIDS network and on the issues of AIDS, and the court case had become a case for the lawyers. And so there really wasn't a whole lot for us to be doing. As I say, we kept harassing the politicians. But eventually, we just sort of faded into the background because in some ways we'd done what we could. It was very clear legislation wasn't going to change here. We needed the feds. We supported the feds. We did lots of press and, and that stuff around that. But the actual work of the court case, you know, it was Sheila Greckel, the law firm that took it on primarily and then the AIDS network was evolving and growing. I still have a picture of the day that and I must try and find the date that Murray and I decided to go we had agreed it was time to shut the organization down and close out the bank account. And I can't remember how much was in it but by that time there certainly wasn't five hundred bucks. 
And uh, so we closed out the bank account and I suspect either stopped filing with the Societies Act or actually formally deregistered the group. So, you know, it was very much a grassroots bunch of people who started off doing Pride Week stuff and helped and supported that to grow into, well, maybe we'll have Pride Week this year, I don't know, but or Pride Month, but helped it, you know, become possible. And then, you know, the split off. And, and then once Delwyn was successful, then the legislatures really didn't have any choice but to change things. And I think we did some work around getting them to, you know, kept harassing them about including changing the legislation to, to include uh, marriage. But that was, you know, that was a few years later. Same-sex marriage in Canada, early 2000s. It was the Delwyn Vreen case and a lot of the laws and legislation there that led towards yeah. same-sex marriage here in Canada. And everything started in Edmonton. Earlier in this conversation, as well as last time, you talked about women's space. And we talked about lesbians being a little bit more sheltered. There was risk in coming out, uh, risk in being who they are as an authentic person living within the community. You mentioned that you were a public relations uh, guru with women's space. This must have been a perfect relationship for you at all times until (laughs) you left women's space. I'm sure that had to be the way, right? Yeah, right. Yeah. yeah. Let's give people some background information here. There was a moment in time when you had to really think about your place in the community. Specifically, you were dating somebody who went to Ottawa who spoke within the House of Commons. Mm-hmm. Can you tell everybody about this? Well, Women's Space was started as a social group for lesbians. I can't remember the date, but it certainly preceded Gala by quite a while. And they organized mostly social events for lesbian women and held monthly dances. And those were incredibly important and very brave thing to be doing because at times, you know, it wasn't at all safe to be out and to be known. So to be renting a hall and uh, having dances was very important. In 1983, I moved from, well, two of us moved from Ontario to Alberta. And one was Lorna Murray and the other one was me. We had both heard about women's space through the grapevine. And so when we arrived, somehow or other, we made contact. And we were both pretty bright-eyed and bushy-tailed and and keen to get involved. And so we did. And there was an annual general meeting, and somebody nominated me to be the public relations person. I think Lorna was the secretary. I can't remember. And so we were on the board. And it was a, a fabulous experience in lots of ways. But the experience of the women in the experience of women is 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 quite different than often than it is of men and many of the women were much more closeted than i was because i wasn't closeted and nor was lorna and so there developed this sort of 
I, I, this difference, I guess. And as long as as there wasn't too much public awareness of women's space, then most people were okay because then they were still safe. But LEAF, which was a women's organization, the Legal Education and Advocacy Fund, was a Canada-wide organization organized by lawyers to be advocates for women. And every year they had an opportunity to speak with the MPs in the House of Commons. They had some time allotted to them and women would come from across the country and ask questions in the House. So when that proposal came to Women's Space, some of us really encouraged it. And Catherine Debray was my then partner, was very keen to go. And so she went. And she is very bright, very capable, very articulate. She was, I think she was studying accounting at that point. She has degrees in both accounting and law. And so she seemed, you know, like a pretty good fit. So they went off to Ottawa and I think the understanding of some of the women was that she was supposed to go and just be an observer. Well, when she had a chance to speak, when they were in the actual House of Commons, she took her opportunity to speak and she asked the then Minister of Justice, poor John Crosby, when he was going to amend the charter to include a lesbians and gay men in it and the poor man just about lost his false teeth but that put her name and as a representative of women's space out into the world and some of the members of women's space were very upset and very concerned and felt like that had been totally inappropriate and she wasn't supposed to do that and it was during a time when it wasn't uncommon in activist groups for some people to take the lead and then other members to turn against them and say, no, no, we didn't really mean it that we, we didn't want you to do that. It was too risky what you did and, and we're mad at you and we're upset with you. So it became evident that several of the members were not pleased and decided that they would have a special meeting to discuss this. It was probably one of the most damaging experiences of my life. And this is the part that I will never understand. It was Catherine who had gone to Ottawa, and yes, she was your partner. With this meeting that you're going to be talking about, I'm still stunned with how much of the blowback went onto you because as an observer, just listening to the story and I've heard uh, part of this story from before, I don't understand this part that you're going to be talking about. Yeah. Well, I think the part of it, Catherine was or is quite a few years younger than I, and, and I had been in, Involved with women's space for a few years before, for a couple of years before Catherine came on the scene. 
and I think that I was seen as having, you know, influence over because she was my partner. I, I think that's what it was. There was also some discussion after the fact that it was a conflict of interest because I had supported sending her to Ottawa, and you could make that argument, but the decision to send her to Ottawa was quite strongly endorsed. You know, if I had recused myself, she still would have been supported to go to Ottawa. So we've set this up now. There's a meeting that has been held. What takes place at this meeting? There was a time when there was a lot of emphasis on women being able to speak their story and tell their stories. And so regardless of, and that's always important, but there was a huge emphasis put on women being able to just tell their stories and not be challenged. And so I remember bits and pieces of it. We had asked a, a colleague of mine, Derwin Whitbread, to come and facilitate. And Derwin was a very experienced social worker, so she knew what she was doing in that meeting. And so each woman, in turn or out of turn, had the opportunity to speak about me, to speak about Catherine, and to speak about what they thought should happen for the organization in regards to us. It started at about seven in the evening and we ended up about two in the morning. And it was every woman there had her opportunity to discuss every little detail of anything either of us had ever said and done, whether it was accurate or not. And I don't recall having much opportunity to explain or to discuss. One of the things that upset people at Women's Space with Catherine was that she was too efficient. And that if she was given a task, it was organized and done very quickly. And she wasn't sufficiently supportive of women who didn't have the same skills. And she wasn't spending time, you know, she, she would just take it and do it and not work with other women who either were afraid to or, or didn't want to. Things that I had said in one context were taken out of context and used to, to prove how how undesirable I was. And so at the end, I think because, partly because, you know, I'm, I'm older than she, I think a large, and I'd been involved in the organization longer, and, and I had brought her into the organization because I knew she had great skills and, and, and would be a, you know, a great benefit. That was used, you know, as, as a way of saying, well, we'll keep Catherine, but we want to expel Liz. And so that was the decision. And I remember Derwin Whitbread saying at the end of the meeting, you've made your decision, but what are you going to do the next time a bright, capable woman comes along and unsettles you and challenges you? And there was no answer. 
there was no answer. And so, yeah. And, and still to this day, I have, I have trouble trusting when I'm in a group of, of a bunch of women. I mean, if I know them well individually, you know, that's fine. But if I'm thrust into a situation where decisions have to be made and, and they're mostly women, I tend often just to be, to be nervous and shut up. Yeah. I'd even say even beyond women, because even with yourself, with me, you had talked at the beginning and I know you were hesitant at the beginning until yeah. I could yeah. show a little bit about my intention yeah. with you coming yeah. on. And so it's, it's something that I noticed as well because of this, were you done then with the community like at two o'clock that night, were you just done with it all and screw it all, burned all bridges? Is that where you were at? Not quite. I think I was probably there for a while, but I, th- I think I was just quite stunned and quite shocked because it was so contradictory to, you know, women are supposed to be supporting each other and helping each other and all of that sort of rhetoric. And, and I had to look very carefully at, you know, what I'd said and what I'd done and how it could have been misconstrued. And I talked in my first meeting about how, you know, I was brought up to, to not to be afraid of authority. And so you know, I wasn't willing to be, to be cowed by authority, so to speak. So I licked my wounds for a while. And then I don't know if it was the same year, maybe it was probably the next year, I assembled a group of people. Again, my friend John Doyle, Catherine was involved, Candace Jane Dorsey, and a woman named Susan, who's moved down east. We decided that it would be worthwhile to bring Jane Rule to town. Jane Rule was, at that time, a very well-known Canadian, well, she's American, but she lived on Galliano Island, and she wrote lesbian fiction. Her book, Desert of the Heart, was turned into a movie. I had written to her and gotten to know her, and we had become friends. We had gone to visit a couple of times and stayed with she and Helen. So I decided, you know, and I was being a bit spiteful, but it's like, okay, you don't want to be around somebody who's out and political? Watch me. And so we had a a week-long tour. We got money from the Alberta Foundation for the Arts and various odd places. And Jane and Helen came and, and put on workshops and put on trainings. Jane was well known in the English literature world. And so there were, uh, there were events put on by the English department at the U of A. And she was invited to go and speak at Athabasca U for the similar reasons. And we had a couple of evening events in which Jane and Helen were there. And... Um, Helen said to me, or yeah, I think it was Helen, said to me eventually, she said, you know, it was clear that people really wanted to come and be, visit and, and meet Jane and, and maybe me, but they sort of wished it wasn't you who'd had to put it on because, because you were, you know, being very forthright about it. And I said, well, that's their problem. Yeah. And so it was all very successful. And well-received. There were lots of women from the community came and sort of didn't quite know what to make of it all. I didn't make any effort to help them feel more comfortable. 
I just said, this is my world. And you know, if you want to come, you're more than welcome. There's a fair bit of press, lots of interviews, and it was quite successful. So I think that's one of the ways that I sort of licked my wounds. And uh, the men around me didn't quite know what to do, but they were generally very supportive. And I kept being involved with gala and other things over time. You were involved with everything at that time because yeah. when you were talking about being voted in with women's space, well, that's the same time that the AIDS network was coming to being. And then you've got Gala. And I'm just thinking how you had time to even work during this time. I have well, no idea. <laughs> well, I was a lot younger and it was my passion. And it just made sense to me. There's this part of me that just goes ahead and does things because they need to be done. And so it baffled me that I could be a, a professional social worker and face homophobia at work because that wasn't, you know, we weren't supposed to be doing that. And, and so I just kept on doing things. And so over time, you know, my role in those things slowed. But I was very involved in the pride parades in the beginning, and it was just fun. You know, uh, one of the things I've said to you is you got with the groups you're involved with, if it's not fun, it's not going to work. Exactly. It's, it's what keeps a person going back week after week, because if it yeah. was all the negative energy, one would never do that. And you hold on to those times that are fantastic. Yeah. or certain songs or certain conversations. That's yeah. what keeps you going. Yeah, um, and it does. When I've talked with Michael about this, when over time you've been at it long enough to see change, then and to see change that's happening just out there in the community that you didn't, you know, you weren't at all involved in, but it just happened. That's so encouraging. Michael and I may have spoken about when the U of A decided to include sexual orientation as a same-sex partners in their health benefits for their staff. And I was as surprised as anybody. We didn't know anything about it. And so I've done some writing around this, but one of the things that made me think about was it is sort of like popcorn. Because in the old days, when you used to popcorn you know, on a frying pan or in a big pan and you'd heat the oil and it would start, you think, oh, it's not going to pop. It's not going to pop. And then bingo, you'd have a whole pot full of, and sometimes there was enough energy that the whole lid would get lifted. And it was just the popcorn doing its thing. And sometimes you think it was all popped and all of a sudden you take the lid off and then a couple more kernels would pop and there'd be popcorn all over the place. And I love that notion that, you know, a kernel of corn that was buried by the Egyptians or the Mexicans, when it's unearthed and the right circumstances are created, it'll grow. It'll be hundreds of hundreds of years old. And so you never know when the seed is going to pop. Social action is sort of like popping popcorn. And you can buy, you know, fancy, expensive popcorn, and maybe it'll all pop, and maybe it won't. And you can buy the cheap stuff, and you still end up with popcorn. Mm -hmm. And it creates change in an unexpected way. 
Speaking of seeds, uh, popcorn seed, time seems to really help us in our community and time and reflection. Yeah. You were stirring the pot. You were getting that friction going. With some of the people who were at that meeting, have you had conversations with them later on in life? And have they come to you and said, oh, now I understand what you were doing. That kernel, that seed has popped for them, perhaps. I've had a couple of conversations with people that didn't go very far. And some people chose, I think, to just not address it. I like to think that, as is usual the case, there are certain people who are quite vehement about things, and they led the charge, so to speak. And there were other opinions there that weren't expressed as clearly as, or they were swayed, or I, I don't know what. But a couple of people have said to me that when it was when the motion was put forward to expel me, they were very taken aback and surprised and didn't know what to do, which to me is pretty cold comfort. I understand that. And knowing those people, that makes sense. Some people have said that they were more concerned about the continuation of the organization as a safe place for lesbians than anything else. And if that meant not having publicity or not being known particularly, then that was a choice they were prepared to make. Remember, it was it was long before the Vreen case. Representation of lesbians was not a positive. You no. Know, very much the same as gay men, of course, but yeah. women just were never shown. And brings in all these other issues that are going through a person's mind at this time when it came to making a decision like this. Yeah. And a lot of them, you know, were single moms. And so they were very afraid that, that they'd lose their jobs. And then what? And on some levels, I understand it. But I was also able to point out that there were single moms who were lesbians, who were known as lesbians, and they seem to be okay. But if you go back to the basics, what you know, what are the what are the emotional bases that people are making those kinds of decisions on? And if they've lived in a world where, and it's so true for women, where good jobs were hard to come by, education was hard to come by opportunity was harder to come by then at the time it made some sense but i i still i still struggle with the paradox of people want somebody else to do it but they don't want the guilt by association yeah. and that's still true oh it's true today in so yeah, many it, different ways and so i mean i tend to be a person that that I'm pretty forthright, and and I tend to just sort of go go ahead, I guess. And perhaps I was wrong in assuming that that the outness of Catherine wouldn't scare the bejeebers out of some people, but it did. I don't think John Crosby was the same for a long time. <laughs> and I think 
Well, one of the things that happened that day was in the House of Commons, Sven Robinson was there and he came over and talked to Catherine and uh, we became friends. And somebody just sent me a tape of the opening of the AIDS network and Sven was there to speak. And uh, he stayed with Catherine and I at the time. So, you know, when you talk about cultural differences amongst groups, I think that that's very clear. There are those of us who feel the need to be more protective. And there are those of us who just don't do that and and won't do that. And we take the, the follow as it comes. And the paradox again is I've always found that when the more people are out, the safer they are. And when you get that into your own gut, that, you know, you're safer when you're known as a lesbian or a gay man or, you know, whatever the X is about you, then you're in a safer place because people have an understanding of you and a sense of your willingness to be honest. To hide takes huge, huge energy. So exhausting. It's absolutely it's just exhausting. And so my choice has always been, if I can be exhausted, then I want to be creating positive change and be doing good at the same time and having some fun and not looking over my shoulder. I giggled to myself a couple months ago because in researching people within the show, it's sometimes really easy to find information i.e. Michael Fair. Sometimes yeah. it's a little bit more difficult to find information on people, i.e. Liz Messiah. Yeah. Dennis Campbell was on uh, a couple of mm-hmm. months ago, and he, he was talking about Times 10 magazine, and he mentioned you. Yeah. And I was like, oh, yes, that's how I knew her name, because yeah. you were a writer four times 10 um, and you wrote a column and that's when I was like, yes, that's where I recognize the name from. So can you tell people more about your connection with times 10 and the writing of this column? Well, it was called uh, speaking of normal because people, particularly those days, clients would come to me and they'd want to know if they were normal and could they be normal and be a member of our community? And the answer was yes, always. But Dennis had been publishing Times 10 for a while. I can't remember when he started. There's a long line of journalists in my family from way back when. So I just thought it would be sort of fun to write a column and help spread some of the knowledge that I have about relationships and mental health and emotional health and so Dennis was was quite keen on that. And so I started writing a column and uh, I still have most of them. And I got lots of positive feedback and often it brought clients into my office. And and I must say, when I look back at them, some of them are pretty darn good. But I addressed, you know, the, some of the tough issues. And people have said to me, why don't you, you know, pull them together and try and publish them? And I said, well... In my spare time. But it was important for there to be a woman's voice there. Yeah. 
Yeah. Because there wasn't. And, you know, again, it's that piece that I keep going on about, but, you know, and maybe we can talk, given a lot of thought, we can talk about it some other time, but the divide between the gay men and the women's community still continues. It's shifted to some extent, but it's still there. And I think it's an important issue for us to, to really, you know, try and wrestle with. But I wanted to get a woman's voice out. I thought it would be probably good for business, which it was. But I thought I knew that I had some things that weren't getting read or said anywhere else. So that's why. And once again, I just sort of put my head down, thought it was a good idea. And well, let's just go do this. And I got flack for writing for a men's news magazine, but whatever. Reflecting on all that now and recognizing your call, it was one of the only lesbian voices that I had around me at that time. And I had no face to the name, but I know I used it for my coming out and my therapy during that time for sure. So, you know... I remember, and that's important, that bridge that took place. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And again, it's popcorn. You never know. You never know when you put yourself out there, you do something, you do it well, and you don't know what's going to happen. But you have to believe that the good stuff will continue to happen, and, and some column or something you said is going to make a positive influence for somebody. And it may happen then, it might might happen in, you know, five years later when they remember it. Yeah. But it'll happen. Yeah, exactly. 25 years later, in my yeah. case, it... Here's you and I chatting away. And, you know, you're learning lots about what was going on 25 years ago when life was very different for you. Yes, so, so very different and i'm just going to reiterate that you said the coming out come out come out harvey Malk was saying it was the best thing that ever happened to me having said that come out when you are ready make sure that you are safe make sure that you've got your ducks in the row as best as you can everybody's situation is different but it doesn't matter if you're out at 14 or at 94 You do so when you are ready, but make sure that you do so. But one of the things that I always add to that, and it's something that Jane Rule would write about, she talked about how the fear is far worse than the fact. And most of the time in life, that's true. And so we get ourselves convinced that only awful things are going to happen if we come out. And the vast majority of times, it's okay. And sometimes there's, you know, there's rejection and trouble at the time. And it doesn't last. And one of the biggest advocates I've seen for for many people is their grandparents. Because often parents would have a fit and people would turn to grandma and grandpa. Because grandma and grandpa had probably lived through World War II. And... They had other fish to fry, so to speak, and would help normalize and help family members adjust. Great grandma Ruby in my family, um, the star of my life, unconditional love, 
Yeah. She knew three, four years before I could come out to my parents. Yeah. And she kept that and she always would make sure, you know, are you good? Yeah. I just love you. She yeah. had the son of my uncle Marvin, who we've talked yeah. about before. And, you know, she came from bygone era and yes, she could have been very conservative and very tut tut with her yeah. comments, but she was like, I love you. And yeah. I may not understand everything, but you haven't changed. Yeah. yeah. You've just yeah. expressed yourself. And that's, I'll never forget that because you're absolutely right. Those great grandparents, those grandparents, it's usually the way in. And so often because they've lived long enough to put things in, into a context. And uh, Catherine's grandmother did a wonderful thing for me because Catherine was uh, raised Dutch Christian reform. And, mm. and, you know, as was Delwyn and, and many others that I know. And, so when she came out, it was not okay. And I think it was our first Christmas together. Catherine insisted on bringing me to the family gathering at her grandma's house for Christmas. It was very cool and very polite. And nobody had, you know, gotten me a card or a gift. And I was okay with that. But grandma had gotten me one of those oranges that are actually chocolate mm. you know and I and and she gave it to me and she said here I got this for you and there was dead silence in the off in the room and every time I see those oranges I think of that moment of grace and kindness you know and and she had lived through World War II in Holland and she was able to get that chocolate orange gift for me I still remember it so you know you never know when where but often it it, it is the the grandparents who can help bridge those differences yeah so we've talked a lot about what you've been involved in and so much taking place at the same time I still feel like we haven't covered everything that we need to with everything that you've been involved in. Am I right with that? Oh, there's always more. There's always more. Because one thing that, and one of the things you notice from today is how interconnected things are. Yeah. You know, and I don't do the community work that I, well, I, I am doing some community work because I'm, I'm connected with the seniors, pride residents that we're trying to get up and going. But once you get used to being comfortable with being out and just being who you are, then the people around you become more comfortable. And so it creates an opportunity for more discussion of, you know, whatever. And was it Adrian Rich who wrote, when a woman tells the truth about herself, she creates more space for truth around her. And to me, that's just, that's why people need to come out. It creates more space. A lot of my clients are military veterans. They know I'm a lesbian and they ask questions or they make comments. It's just another topic of discussion. That's how change happens. One step at a time, whenever. One, one step at a time and then 
bingo. There is some some popcorn is just popped and off it's gone. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Liz, there's going to be many more conversations. We'll have many more group conversations as people yeah. come together as well. Yeah. And we've put out the seeds for yeah. the future conversations as well, because the conversation with gay men, yeah. lesbians, the divide where we come together is an yeah. important one to have. And yeah. it's uh, something that we need to explore because that's the dynamics of everything. Absolutely. So let's chat again sometime. Absolutely. So everyone, thank you again for taking the time to listen to this episode of Tales of the 2S LGBTQ+. I was joined today by the icon, Liz Messiah. I was not able to throw in the word icon yet, so I had to make sure to do that because I love how she cringes at that, but it gives me life. So everyone, thank you again. Please check out previous episodes, not just with Liz, but with everybody. One week at a time, one story at a time, we're giving you the stories of our community. Happens to be your stories. Perhaps you will be on an episode in the future. Until next time, everyone, reminding you to be good and always text when you get home. Mm. Goodbye for now. Bye-bye. <laughs>